We are continuing in Matthew, Matthew 25. Uh, I don't know if you know it, but chapter divisions really mean absolutely nothing. That in the uh, original languages, uh, there were no chapter division verses, not even any punctuation. And it's really unfortunate that 24 and 25 are two separate chapters because they deal with the same exact theme. Matthew 24, we have the Lord's coming again, and Jesus uses three illustrations. And now in chapter 25, he talks about Jesus coming again, and he uses three parables. But the theme is always the same. He's coming again. We don't know when, but we must be prepared. And before I read it, this is a parable. A parable, the word literally means to throw down beside something where you can compare it. So here's what you do. You throw down this parable by the second coming of Christ and make them to see how they compare to one another, how they're similar and how they're not alike in some kind of way. And so the bridegroom is Jesus coming again. Uh, The ten virgins are believers who are supposed to be waiting for him, and the wedding feast is uh, heaven itself, the kingdom of heaven. And so with that kind of introduction, let me read Matthew 25, 1 through 13. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps or torches and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish one took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise, however, took oil with them along with their lamps. The bridegroom was gone a long time, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here comes the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. And all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied. They may not be enough for both of us, and you instead go out and buy, go out, to those who sell the oil and buy some for yourself. So while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived, the virgins who were ready went with him into the wedding, and the door was shut. And later the others also came. Sir, sir, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour." One of the things you know about me, I'm a redneck from Port Gibson, and I grew up saying oil and not oil. And so I'm going to waver between both of them. Sometimes I'll sound like a redneck, sometimes I'll sound like I know what I'm doing. But anyway, let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you for the warning and the way that you call us to prepare. Help us to be wise and not foolish, and we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. I did a wedding the other day, Matthew Wood's wedding and Brinkley's wedding, and uh, the pastor that I was helping asked me, how many weddings do you think you've done? And I said, well, it's probably well over a hundred. I did nine one summer, and I usually do two or three every year at, at the least, and been at it for 40 years, so a hundred weddings. And every wedding's unique. And in every wedding, there's something memorable that happens, usually sometimes funny. When I was doing Matthew Wood's wedding, 
we were standing under the flowers. The flower frame was behind us, and the groom and the bride were in front of us. And there was a blank wall behind the flowers. It's just a black drapery. And so I had my back to the back drapery, and Matthew started grinning. You know, you just could tell he was grinning, and, you know, you just wonder what's going on. And then all of a sudden, he just falls out in laughter. I mean, big-time laughter. I mean, tears running down his eyes. What he saw was he saw the photographer worming his way behind the drapery. And all of a sudden, he stumbled over the flowers, and the flowers kind of teetered like this. And all of a sudden, his head or the camera stuck out of the draperies, and Matthew lost it, you know? And so I'll never think of that wedding without that. There are weddings where, I'm not going to mention Jeff or Laurel, but uh, we came into the wrong song, and we dropped the rings. And I sure wouldn't want to embarrass Wendy Wood, who one wedding kicked her shoes off, and I hid them under my robe. And she walked out of the wedding uh, barefooted. We now have rules against that, Wendy. But anyway, I remember one wedding where the singer, I think, fell down the stairs when they were coming back, uh, coming down from singing the choir. I think that was David and Rebecca's wedding. Uh, I also know that just just numerous things they seem to always happen at weddings. Weddings are memorable. It would be very memorable, but sadly so, if five of the bridesmaids forgot to bring enough oil to have a torch that leads to procession. You need to understand a Jewish wedding was really bigger than a wedding today. Not that I want to scare those who get married, Chip, but the average wedding cost over $35,000. So he's be taking up an offering after this service. Uh, but Jewish weddings were probably more expensive than that uh, in that current currency. You had a wedding that lasted seven days, and you were supposed to feed them and give them something to drink for those whole seven days. And remember at the wedding of Cana, Jesus had to make water, make wine out of water because they ran out of wine. And so that would have been an embarrassing uh, situation for the bride and groom. The wedding was usually, uh, didn't have a time on it that the the groom would go to the uh, bride's house and dicker with the dad. He actually had to come up with a price that he thought his wife was worth. And can't you just... Hear how thrilled the wife, I mean the bride is when her dad's talking about how many goats she's worth or something like that. And uh, after they reach the bargain, and then the the bridegroom, the groom comes out and everybody uh, lights their torch and they process to the groom's house and they start the wedding. And except in this case, the five people were foolish and they forgot their oil for their lamp and they could not uh, participate and they had to had to go and to leave and buy some. And when they came back, the door was shut and they couldn't get in the wedding. That's kind of what happened and why it happened. Uh, but a parable is meant to be pondered. You know, you, you get a piece of candy, like uh, you get a M&M, and you eat it real quick. But you get a piece of hard candy, you kind of suck on it a long time, and you see how long you can make it last. And that's what you do with a parable, you just kind of savor it and kind of figure out what its meaning is to you. And it it can mean all sorts of things, although there's one major point. 
But I think the major point is today in this parable, surprise. The foolish bridesmaids, the foolish virgins are surprised they couldn't get in. Couldn't get in the wedding, couldn't get into heaven. They're surprised that nobody can help them get in. They cannot get in on anybody else's ticket. And they're surprised that there ever is a time that's too late to show up for a wedding. So the surprise is it. They're shocked, surprised that they couldn't get in. The foolish ones are the focus of the parable. And they are foolish not because they're dumb. Foolishness in the Bible has nothing to do with IQ. Foolishness in the Bible is a moral quality or an ethical issue. A a foolish person acts as if there's no God and no judgment. Psalm 14 says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And so if you act like God is never going to send his son back to judge the world, if you live like there is no God and there is no judgment, then you're foolish, a foolish person. And so they, they are foolish in that they don't carry any oil. I mean, how much they had, if they had any, did they have their torch soaked? And, and that's all they had. They didn't carry any extra, though, is all we know. And so the verse focuses on these people who, when they come back, they, they knock on the door and say, Lord, Lord, let us in. And he says, I never knew you. This is the second time that uh, Matthew records Jesus saying these words. Depart from me, I never knew you. The first occasion was during the Sermon on the Mount when the kingdom comes and you get to the heaven's gate and you get to come in and they say, Lord, let us in. And he says, depart from me, you evildoers, I never knew you. But Lord, we, we did miracles. We proclaimed your name. We, we proclaimed you in the streets. And he goes, depart from me, I, I never knew you. And so the, Jesus is trying to say or is saying, and we're trying to understand it, that there will actually be people on the last day that will think they're going to heaven but they aren't. They will look just like every other professing Christian in the world, but they don't possess what they profess. It's not really in their heart. It's in their mind or in their, in their lips. Uh, it's alarming that people could think that. It's alarming that we could think that, that the kingdom of God in here is heaven. Now think about the parable again. You had ten bridesmaids. They probably all looked alike. They probably had the same beige dress, you know, that the bride said, you can use it again. Did you ever use it again, you know? Uh, But anyway, they probably told that tale back then, too. So anyway, they have these ten virgins, and they have the same dress, and they all have gotten an invitation. They've all accepted the invitation. They all show up. They're all waiting for the bridegroom to come. They're all willing to lead the procession. And then when the last event happens that they're supposed to do what they're supposed to do they can't do it they're they're without preparation they're without the oil so the only difference is the oil what is that well that's what we need to ponder everything else is the same except five foolish ones have no oil 
Well, some say that the idea is just simple preparation, that Jesus has used three parables about Noah and about uh, the, the tenant and about the, uh, the servant, and he's used these illustrations to be ready, to be prepared, to be looking for him, to be doing uh, what you ought to do, doing your task when he comes. And so the idea is just you're being prepared and you're not caught off guard. Some say oil is a, a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And what some people lack in this parable is they lack the Holy Spirit. Now, if you take the, that approach, you have to say then that they had no oil in their possession at all, that their torches were not covered with oil or they didn't carry any oil. And so because you cannot have the idea that Christians can run out of the Holy Spirit. You know, uh, I remember hearing a, a old joke years ago that there was a guy who came to church, and it was a church where they always went to the altar to pray and ask for something. And every week he would go, Lord, fill me with the Holy Spirit. And finally this lady in the back got tired of him going every week and saying, fill me with the Holy Spirit. She said, Lord, he leaks. So, you know... You know, we don't want to have the idea that you can, you know, leak out the Holy Spirit. So I think it has to be something different than that. So the idea, I believe, is, is genuine faith. That there is such a thing as temporary faith that receives the Word of God with joy, and then the birds come and take it away, which is the devil, or that material things choke it out or persecutions burn it up. And so Jesus is saying those who have real faith, that if you have faith, you won't lose it. If you lose it, you never had it. And so Jesus is talking about having real faith, faith that lasts through the trials and tribulations and the pain and the death and the sorrow of life. True saving faith is how we get in. You know, if you know anything about evangelism explosion. It was designed by D. James Kennedy, and he had this uh, method of doing evangelism. And his method was always to ask just two simple questions. If you were to die tonight, do you know if you'll go to heaven or not? And if the people said yes, you asked them, why should God let, me into your, let you into his heaven? And if they said no, I don't know, then you tell them how to get into heaven. And so R.C. Sproul tried that method on his own son when he was, uh, you know, a youngster about to join the church type age. And R.C. asked his son, he said, Son, if you were to die tonight, do you know without a doubt that you'd go to heaven? He said, Yes, Daddy. And he said, Why should God let you into his heaven? Because I'm dead. And R.C. said, You know, his son really was saying something that most people think justification by death everybody who dies goes to heaven kind of a universal concept of, of justification by faith but if you were to go through evangelism explosion and ask the people what are the reasons people say God should let them into their heaven they'd say because I belong to a church it's a conservative church because I do good things I do more good things than bad things because God is love, and God is more love than anything else. And anyway, there's, there's no judgment and there's no hell. Hell's a figment of your imagination. 
And so people become all kinds of wrong reasons. And the reason that God should let us into heaven is because of Jesus. Not our works, but his works. That he was born of a virgin. He lived a godly life without sin. That we might be righteous by faith. He died on the cross that our sins might be forgiven. And he rose again that we might have life and have it everlasting. The answer to the question is, the reason I should go to heaven is only because of Jesus and the mercy of God. And it would be terrible to have false assurance based on anything else. So they're surprised they couldn't get in. They're surprised others couldn't get them in. They're surprised they couldn't get help from other people. The groom comes, and they realize that they don't have enough oil to burn in their lamps. And the foolish ones, without any oil, they go to the, to the ones that are wise and say, Give me some of yours. Share with me. And they said, No, we can't share with you because if we do that, there won't be enough for me and for you to both do it. And so you have to do yourself. I was asked, and it's a good question, uh, you know, can we be selfish sometimes? Well, this isn't saying don't share your lunch. This isn't saying, you know, don't share your, your dessert. This is saying you can't share preparation. You, you can't share uh, being ready. You know, I can't break off a piece of readiness and give it to you. And you can't give it to your neighbor or your wife or your child. They have to go out and they buy their own. I've always said this to youth groups, that faith is like a toothbrush. You have to have your own. You ever used anybody else's toothbrush? Well, I've always had a purple Oral-B toothbrush. And when Sarah got me a new toothbrush recently, she didn't get a purple Oral-B toothbrush. She got me an aqua-colored toothbrush, kind of the color of the Miami Dolphins, you know. And so I look at there, and I go, aqua's not mine, and I grab hers without looking. And I start brushing my teeth, and I go, oh, no, do I tell her? Well, (laughs) hey, Sarah, I used your toothbrush. I waited to this time to tell her about that. No, I, I fessed up as soon as I did it. And I live to tell about it. So you have to have your own faith. What is faith? What is saving faith? Saving faith has knowledge, it has assent, and it has trust. Saving faith is more than knowledge, but it's not less. You have to believe that Jesus was the Son of God. And you have to believe that he lived a sinless life, or you can't be right. And you have to believe that his death was not just an example, but was an atoning sacrifice to take away the wrath of God. And his resurrection was so that you could have life and have it everlasting. You have to believe that. You have to know that. You know, you just can't have faith in faith. You can't have faith in, you know, whatever you want to. Your faith's object has to be Christ. And not only do you have to have knowledge, you have to believe it. 
there are a lot of things that I know that I don't believe. I know a lot of what the Mormons believe. I know that they don't believe the Word of God is, is, is sufficient. You have to have another book. Uh, they believe you can have more than one wife. They believe that when they die that they're going to inherit their own planet. I, I know what they believe, but I don't believe it. So you have to have what you know about Christ, and you have to believe it. Basically, you have to say this, I, I believe it, not mama, daddy, whatever. I believe Jesus Christ lived and died, rose again for me. And then you not only have to believe it, you have to trust it. You have to put your faith in it. Most of you know that uh, it takes me, I've flown a lot, but I'm really not fond of flying. And I have to go through the same process every time I fly. You know, okay, this plane is the safest way to go. You know, that statistically it's, it's, it's better than driving to Los Angeles or Philadelphia or Grand Rapids or, or Tampa, all the places I've flown. You know, it's safer. And I have to say, okay, now I know those stats now. I believe them, but I really don't believe them until I get up on the plane. And then I probably don't believe them until halfway I put my weight down. But anyway, it's like marriage. It is marriage. It's parables about marriage. You, you, you know a person. You emotionally love a person, but you're not married until you commit to one another. And then you're until you trust one another. And sometimes we can think we are and really aren't. When we built this church, uh, Frank Barker came to preach. And before we built this church, he came and preached at the uh, uh, Independent Methodist Church. Some of y'all remember that. It's at the end of Fayette Davis. I don't know what it's called now. But he preached there. And one of the things that Frank Barker wanted to do was play tennis. Uh, he was good at tennis. And so we lined him up to play tennis with Brad Hovius. And Brad Hovius... Uh, played tennis at Ole Miss, and so they were pretty pretty well matched. But Frank had a gift of evangelism. He could just enter into a conversation about your spiritual condition without being threatening. And on their way to or from playing tennis, Frank Barker said, Brad, tell me about how you came to know the Lord, how you became a Christian. Brad said, well, you know, uh, I grew up as Episcopal, then I got married, and my wife was Presbyterian, and so I joined the Presbyterian Church. And then, you know, the people that I knew and trusted, they left the PCUSA Church, and they went to the PCA Church because it was uh, conservative. And so I joined the church, and been there so long, they elected me a deacon. Frank Barker said, man, that's great. You've told me about your church. When did you become a Christian? And Brad said, what do you mean? He said, when did you acknowledge your sins and say, I need a Savior, and you gave your life to Him. And Brad said, I guess I never have. And he did it that day. And it was so obvious to all of us. Brad would stand up on Sunday night during share time, and he'd say, have y'all ever read John 3.16? I'm going, Brad, everybody in the world knows that. You know, he would just, he was, you could tell he had been converted. See, that's what this is about. You, you cannot use anybody else's faith. It has to be yours. And you're never too young, really, to put your faith in Christ. 
And you young people, you know, do it today. Tell your parents, hey, I know I'm a sinner. I believe Jesus died for me, and I want to live for him. Do it today. The last thing is they're surprised that the door is shut. They're surprised there's a too late involved in the gospel. You know, there's a too late in life, and you need to learn it's too late. You know, if you, I've known of teachers that when the bell rings, they lock their door, and you just miss class. It's too late to buy insurance when your house is on fire. And it's too late when Jesus comes back to make a commitment of faith, obviously. They said, Lord, Lord, that word is not Yahweh, Yahweh, it's kurios, kurios, which means it could be a, a word of respect. It might not be an acknowledgement of, that they believe Jesus is divine, although uh, Dr. Gerstner, who taught RC, believes he, they're saying that you're, you're God, you're God. They, they have an orthodoxy. They really believe Jesus is God. And he says, I never knew you. I never knew you. Of course, the God of the universe knows everything. He knew them. He knew their name, knew where they're from, knew their age, knew why they didn't get any oil. He, he, he knew everything. But what he meant was he didn't know them intimately. When the Bible uses the word knowledge like that, it talks about an intimate knowledge that I know you, I know all about you, I know your, what you like and what you don't like, I know your weaknesses, your strengths. We, we have a relationship. I hadn't used a Barney illustration in a long time, so I guess I can get away with it now. Y'all wouldn't believe how many I restrained from using. But anyway, Barney uh, gives the governor a ticket. Y'all remember that? He gives the governor a ticket, and when the mayor finds out that Barney has given the government a, a governor a ticket, he is just beside himself. And he is just ranting and raving, and finally he said, it's a good thing I know the governor. We are friends. And he picks up the phone, and he somehow he gets the governor on the phone, and he says, this is, Governor, this is Roy Stoner. And you, only, you don't hear what the governor says. And he says, Roy Stoner. Stoner, Stoner, Roy Stoner. And so uh, finally it's obvious that the governor doesn't know Roy Stoner. He hands the phone, and they get it worked out, and Andy turns to him and says, Good thing you knew the governor so well. I bet you Jeff remembers that one. Do you know the Lord experientially, personally, intimately? Do you pray to Him? Do you read His Word? Do you care what He thinks? Do you look for His coming? You know, the old fable is that the devil asks his cohorts, what do we do to make people hesitate in making the decision. And one devil said, well, tell them there's no God. And they said, well, you can look out there and know there's a God. There's plenty of good things made and stuff. And he said, well, tell them there's no hell. All oh, their conscience, they know there's no hell. And they know that, you know, evil has to be punished. And he said, well, tell them it's no hurry. He said, that's a good idea. It's no hurry. There is a hurry. 
Bible says today is the day of salvation. And do you know when we take communion and we read the communion verses, it says we're going to do this until he comes again. So every time we take communion, we're reminding ourselves he's coming. He's coming again. And the elements are not just that we remember that he died and he's coming, but they feed our faith and they nourish our hope and they, they deepen our love so that when he comes, we'll be faithful. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this parable. Thank you for giving us a, a warning and an encouragement to come to you today and put our faith and trust in you. And give us encouragement as we take of the table that we might live faithful lives in the days ahead. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.